0: Kara, how's that bra strap?
1: Hiding for the moment.
0: Okay. Welcome to the it Sausage is, of Science, everyone.
1: My we talk strap about has been peeking through the shirt all day.
0: Kara's frost the, the food she's eating, how phallic string it is. String today. Today was ah. string
1: cheese. String cheese and coffee. We are the called lunch the sausage of, champions. of Science,
0: <laughs> so yes. Better than uh, mine, I had a nothing.
1: No, I mean, I actually had a full lunch that involved raw broccoli, cucumbers, and dill pickle hummus, which is amazing.
0: Ew.
1: And then I have this weird feeling of, like, when I dip cucumbers in dill pickle hummus, it's like dipping the cucumbers in the remains of its siblings. <laughs> i just like... Do they this cry? Weird, they don't, but I, I'm imagining it, like yeah. they have been cannibalized. No! I don't know. It's, it's <laughs> It's a bizarre what? feeling that Cousin. is only that is only overcome by the fact that I love pickles. So actually I love dill. It comes down to I like dill. Anything dill-based, I'm happy.
0: Good to know. I got dill growing in my garden.
1: Oh, <gasps> so good.
0: I grow tons of stuff and I don't even I don't use it all cuz I grow things and then I'm like, "Oh shit." It's here now. What do I do with it? And then it just you kinda donate
1: like, the dill to whoever yeah, will take it.
0: I donate a lot of things because I can't keep up with it. It, it all—it's like mm. it, there's nothing, and then there's everything. Kara, what are we doing today?
1: Today we are talking to a fellow Michigan alum, which always makes me happy. Shock uh, of shocks. We should shock just of shocks. only
0: only only note when the person we're interviewing has no affiliation with Michigan, because that, that is, is more rare.
1: It is more rare. It is oddly more rare. Uh, but today we are talking to uh, Dr. Zachary Coffrin, who I I knew of Zach only peripherally because I was still on like anthro department email list for the University of Michigan. And his email was Zacharoo at umich.edu at the time. And so I knew him by his email and I would just chuckle to myself every time I saw Zacharoo. So that's my, my Zach Coffrin story. But uh, he is currently an assistant professor uh, of anthropology at Vassar College and is affiliated with the Center for the Exploration of the Deep Human Journey at the University of witt And he, of course, earned his Ph.D. from the University of Michigan back in 2012. Go blue. Always go blue. Got tight. Uh, now, no. you all have algae as your mascot, and yet, it's somehow anthropomorphized as, or I don't know, personified. Whatever you want to use as an elephant, you don't get. To
0: oh, talk. Sorry. So, a color for a, a Wolverine is is better. Go blue. But it's a Michigan Wolverine.
1: We so. could also say go Wolverines. No one says go red algae.
0: Well, they don't. Say do they say? Go, go elephants. They say. They say
1: go wah, wah, we lost again.
0: But okay. So they anyway, they haven't lost. I know they haven't lost. <laughs> They're actually. right. They are-
1: undefeated thank you very much number four in the country anyway i'll be
0: watching watching them lose this weekend but i also have a connection here because i used to live two blocks away from vassar all through grad school um i would go over there and do all my homework um on days i didn't commute and my wife was like why can't you get a job at vassar and i'm like because i don't have any biological anthropologists well they do now
1: and so he
0: is on the line
1: He is on the line, and he studies human evolution, growth, and development, and has been heavily involved in the Rising Star cave system in South Africa. And Zach has a new paper out in AJBA called the Immature Homo Naledi Ilium from the Lissetti Chamber of the Rising Star Cave, South Africa. Let's bring him on.
0: Hang on a second. We haven't actually had anyone from the Rising Star team come on the show which is ironic, because even though we're human biology show, that we both interacted with Lee and John. Uh, Lee but Berger technically and John we have, Hawks because
1: Augustine is now kind of part of that team, and he's been on the show before.
0: Okay, well, we didn't know that at the time.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Matthew Berger... Son of Lee Berger, who's been involved in all that stuff, was a student of mine here, and so Lee would come around here. And John has also come and given talks at Alabama, and is actually one of the reasons I started doing public engagement. So I've been wanting to interview someone from the Rising Star team for a long, long time, and this just gives us an excuse. So
1: we love excuses to talk about we cool are, shit.
0: Cool shit. Welcome to the sausage of science.
1: Nope. <laughs> He's like, I'm out. I take one look at us and was out. <laughs>
0: he was like, fuck all of you. I thought I was on the Neil deGrasse Tyson podcast, but apparently I'm not.
1: We just figured you had no desire to actually talk to us and wanted to, like, visually demonstrate your, your disgust with us.
2: I'm very theatrical.
1: <laughs> Zach, welcome to the Sages of Science. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, I've already extolled your Michigan background since
2: we share that. Uh, uh, Nice. Go Blue. Oh, 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 she said that already.
0: So I will throw in that uh, there are two reasons, Zach, that I, I reached out. One is because I've been wanting to have someone from the Rising Star team on the show for a long, long time. Matt Berger was a student of mine, so Lee came through all the time, John came through. And we never did any interviews for this, even though we talked about it. And then I also, uh, my wife's from Poughkeepsie, so I spent a lot of time in that shithole. No offense. Um, Vassar <laughs> Not is that awesome. Bad. hey. But the rest of the Poughkeepsie is better than Tuscaloosa. So I say shithole with all of the affection in my heart and love Rossi's
2: and go there every time I go to town. Yeah. So. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a fine town. I, I look forward to one day seeing Tuscaloosa and making the comparison myself.
1: Hold on. Uh, for those of us not in the know, what is Rossi's?
0: Oh, I'm
2: sorry. Uh, do, do you go to dally. Rossi's, Zach? Uh, I've, I've, actually, the first time I actually actively went there was a few weeks ago. We invited uh, Stephanie Poindexter, who's a primatologist, mm-hmm. out for my mm-hmm. primates class. Oh, my gosh. Like, I ordered what I thought was like a the small or medium sandwich, and it was like Wait, <laughs> the box weighed like ten pounds.
1: So Quite am good. I to take it? This is like a classic Italian deli.
2: Seriously? Yes. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother York, so. would take
1: me to like Italian delis and markets when I was little, and I have a like a deep nostalgia for classic Italian markets. Uh, but you said this was the first time you actively went there. Have you passively gone there?
2: Uh, yeah. Sometimes we do get stuff catered. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not much of a, a food person.
1: You're talking to the wrong people, then.
2: Yeah, right. Uh, sausage of Do you live I, in Poughkeepsie? Hang up again? Um, <laughs> you might want to. <laughs> do,
0: do you live in Poughkeepsie? I'm curious.
2: Uh, I do, yeah. Vassar has... Uh, they set up faculty housing, so I just kind of live... Oh. live uh, not on campus, but, but close by.
0: I was on Whirl Avenue, so probably really close by. Whirl, yeah,
2: just uh, up the, the 44.
0: Do you live near where Kendall Francois' uh, infamous home was? Do you know who he was? The, one of the murderers from the air? Yeah, yeah, he's our infamous uh, Poughkeepsie serial killer.
1: <laughs> how is there not he, a Netflix special? I don't know about serial killers unless there's a Netflix special about them. No I, I don't know, oh. but, oh. but okay. I did, right <laughs> across <laughs> the street the
0: mayor. Uh, Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, Zach, we start the show the same way each and every time, and that's getting to know a little bit about you and your journey in this wonderful field of biological anthropology. So how you got interested in it to begin with, and why you decided to pursue it as a career.
2: Yeah, so I ended up doing biological anthropology pretty much on accident because I didn't have any uh, big experience or background in biology or evolution really until kind of towards the end of my, my college career at Loyola Chicago. I think part of it was that I was always a big nerd and from middle school onward was very interested in kind of life before it is as we know it today. And so I started off, I I was lucky enough to take some classes in ancient Greek and Latin in high school. And I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Cause again, I'm a big, big nerd. And I went to kind of pursue that more when I went to college and just kind of by accident realized like, you know, I don't want to study classical archeology, span what I really want to do is anthropology because I kind of kept moving further and further back in time as I was taking more classes And then right before my senior year, I was like, hold on, wait a minute. There's fossil people? Get out. And that just kind of was a a total game changer. And my senior year, I read everything I could and and started applying to programs. And it all just kind of worked out from there. So, And the anthropology department there was really great. It was a four-field program. And I kind of ended up taking cultural anthropology just because uh, my advisor was like, you need a social science credit, and it turned out to be a really awesome class, and so I kept taking more classes and that's kind of how I ended up here so I don't know if we mentioned it in our
0: intro. I can't remember Kara the article that you've just you and your team, the rising star team have just put out it you know is is our excuse to reach out to you to to ask you more generally. Uh, about how you got involved, I mean, maybe a little background for folks who aren 't actually familiar with what the Rising star cave is, but what was found there, but how you got involved in it. Have you been in the cave? you know are you one of those uh spelunkers, et cetera? Tell us about your experience with the rising star yeah. project
2: yeah so it's it's not as exciting i wasn 't one of the underground astronauts they called the the first group of people that got to go into the into the cave, so just for a little bit of background, the human fossil record in South Africa is pretty massive and has been studied for decades. And it's basically comprised of all of these, this, this massive cave system, you know, goes back millions of years up to the present, uh, depending on kind of where you are. And so I've been working in South Africa uh, on and off for several years. My dissertation was on robust Australopithecus jaws. And so there was kind of that connection there from the beginning. And then I remember I was actually working in Kazakhstan at the time. It was my first professor gig. And Lee had put out this call on Facebook saying, all right, well, we've got a cool discovery in one of these caves. Uh, We need people to come down and get in there. And I was like, oh, this would be so cool, but... Teaching right now, and I don't think I can can justify it. So I, I sadly had to let that pass me by. And a while later, he put out another call saying, "All right, well now we need people to study all this cool stuff that we found." And I was like, "Oh my gosh, me, me, me!" So I applied to to work on that team, and they invited me down there uh, because my specialty is is the evolution of growth and development, very specifically how can you study this really important aspect of what literally makes animals what they are when you have really poor fossil samples? And so my dissertation was about how do you study growth in terrible fossil samples? And they're terrible because the bones are not complete. It's not very many of them. And so it's really hard to make inferences about how animals grew up and what that meant for their pace of life and their adaptations. And so when I got down to, to South Africa to see these fossils, and, you know, I didn't get to go to the cave went down there and they had all of these boxes filled with bones and it was just kid in a candy shop. You know, it was just very remarkable all the the elements that they had there.
0: So you, you sort of jumped to an explanation that I was, I was wondering about, which is how you go from jaw to ilium, but your expertise is in growth and development. So could you tell us a little bit about how you use fragmentary remains to determine anything about that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I like about, uh, the kind of overarching framework of growth and development is that you don't have to focus in on one specific biological system. My dissertation was on the jaw, and the jaw is really important for growth and development because that holds your teeth, and your teeth come into the mouth at a narrow range of ages and in a pretty precise sequence. First molar comes in, then the incisors, and then the premolars and all that stuff. And that's something that actually sets humans apart from other animals, this sequence in which the, the, the teeth come in. Um, so jaws are important for that. But you can study pretty much anything you want. Say, oh, it's, it grows. So it's, it's within my, my purview. So I've done this with brains. I've done this with the ilium now. Uh, we've got some other stuff from the Rising Star Cave that is incredibly fragmentary. and It's kind of frustrating. But my colleagues are very good anatomists. Uh, like Heather Garvin and uh, Davorka Radovchich.
1: Davorka! Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, I remember Seki yeah. <laughs> so well. Uh, she was in grad school at Michigan when I was an undergrad. Yeah,
2: um, yeah. We we all go back to around that time. It's kind of wild to think that was like, I don't want to think about how long ago it was. <laughs> yeah, a <laughs> long time. But, so um, that's
1: another question too. Like maybe you can give folks at home kind of an idea of the scope of, you know, rising stars when putting out, tons of stuff has been coming out. What yeah. proportion would you say is juvenile so that you can actually assess growth and development? Like what is your sample size to work from? And then how you ended up focusing on this one ileum in particular?
2: Yeah. So to be honest, I don't, I don't like know off the top of my head, like actual percentages or proportions, but it, it's, it's surprisingly or unsurprisingly kind of a lot. And so this is one of the things that was a little frustrating when we first got out there to study growth. Cause I was like, all right, I've come up with big ways to basically use what's called resampling statistics to analyze these depauperate fossil samples. So with that background, I was like, all right, here we go. Let's see the bones. What can I do with them? And the sample was just not not set up for that because it's in the Dinaletti chamber, the main chamber where they they made the initial discoveries, just, you know, thousands of fragments that have been scattered across the floor of this cave. And so you don't necessarily know what bones go with what. There are a few fossils where It looks like, you know, you can make that association. So I think there's a hand that was found almost in articulation, hand skeleton, that is. And so Marina Elliott, one of the original underground astronauts, and uh, Debbie Bolter uh, have done a lot of work to basically go through these collections and say, all right, well, you know, what can we associate? So that was one of the initial things that we did down there was just say, all right, how many immature individuals do we have? At what state of maturation or development Where in the growth process would they be? And then from there, can we try to say, all right, well, maybe these go together. At the very least, this would correspond with at least this many individuals that say are like teenagers or or little infants or something like that. And the way I ended up doing the ilium and focusing in on the ilium was in 2017, John Hawks and colleagues had published additional Homo naledi remains from the Lisseti chamber. So it's another nearby chamber within the general Rising Star Cave system. And from there, you don't have nearly as many elements or fragments as you do in the Dinaletti Chamber where the fossils were first discovered. Um, But they did have this tiny little ilium. And I was like, all right, ilium. I hardly even know him, Um, but it was just this nice little piece. And it's actually the most complete ilium of Homo naledi uh, as it was published at the time where you have part of the sacroiliac joint and you have kind of a lot of the, that lower portion there, but you're missing a lot of the side that in humans gives us that kind of nice bowl shaped pelvis. So I wanted to, to study it. And so when I went down in 2019 to start working on some other infant remains, uh, I definitely made it a point to say, all right, well, I want to see this little ilium here because I think it could potentially tell us a lot about early human animals, this like experiment and being human. When I got down there, I saw that, you know, it wasn't just that little fragment. Actually, it's on MorphoSource. You can download it if you want. Uh, but it was with a whole bunch of other little fragments, including this big piece that I'm 99.9% sure represents kind of the top of that iliac crest towards the front. And so with that little bit on there, that actually tells us a whole... We basically have a good idea of what the entire ilium bone looked like, and then from there it was just like, all right, well, how do we analyze it in a way that allows us to make these inferences about what the the bone looked like? So it was kind of fortuitous that no one had done anything with it before I got to it, because again, it's the most complete ilium of of Homo naledi, and like a lot of the fossil record, the most complete things tend to come from juveniles or immature individuals. So you're like, oh, okay, well, what does this mean for the adults? And uh, so-, so that's why we focused in on the ilium.
0: For listeners who aren't familiar, let me just recap. Obviously, you'll know all this. So, uh, Homo naledi is a big find for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is because it's it's found in a chamber with no evidence of carnivory or any erosion or or it basically it looks like they were bodies that were purposely taken down there and left. And the homonoleti has a really small cranial capacity. So it's so small that previous theorists didn't think it would be capable of such sort of advanced behavior, but it's it's within the Anthropocene. And when we teach bioanth here, and, and maybe you, you guys do it the same way, like when we teach bipedalism, we use and I think listeners may have figured this out by now, but the ilium is part of the pelvis, and we use it in labs to sort of show how it's changed over time to accommodate what becomes bipedalism. So we will compare a sort of straight ilium of chimpanzees to the starting to flare of of Lucy, australopithecines, and then a much more bowl-shaped of humans. So I wonder with that context, can you tell us what you found and where this ilium fits in that framework? And and then sort of the follow-up question is, how does that fuck with our sense of bipedalism and symbolic communication? All the shit, right, that like Homo Naledi is doing for us.
2: So with Caroline Van Sickle, a few years earlier, we had described a lot of the... Other pelvic remains of Homo naledi from the Dinaledi chamber, and those were much more fragmentary. But we did get a good sense that this hip bone probably looked a lot more like Australopithecus than later, later Homo, where in Australopithecus, that ilium kind of is fairly flat and, and flares out to the side. And it's not as as bowl shaped as we have in in humans today. And the functional significance of that, I think, is is not a hundred percent clear. You know, the the ilium is where your various muscles attach that help you to walk. And the major modifications to our pelvis and kind of the positions of those those walking muscles seems to have been present in Australopithecus, even if it didn't look exactly like like us today. Um, so we, we kind of had this initial impression from the Dinaledi remains that Homo naledi would have had a flaring Australopithecus-like ilium, and that's pretty much exactly what what this this fossil showed. There are some immature Australopithecus ilia from a site called Makapanscot in South Africa. It's probably around two and a half or three million years old, and if you were to just blow up, scale up the, the Homo naledi ilium that we found, it would be almost exactly like the Australopithecus juvenile ilium, except for that sacroiliac joint where the, the spine meets the butt. Uh, for some reason, that is Homo naledi in humans of a similar developmental stage seem to have a, a larger or more expanded joint surface there, uh, whereas Australopithecus uh, has a smaller joint surface there. And I don't I don't know what that means.
1: Do you think Not it yet, relates in know. any way to just like I mean body mass, center of body mass, and distribution? Since that's usually what people associate with larger
2: articular surfaces. I mean, that's that was our initial kind of like maybe it's telling us something about how they walk, but or how how big they are. But Homo naledi is a bit smaller than humans today, and for a given age, it's probably smaller than than humans that would be of a similar state mm-hmm. of development. This little this little fossil limb that we found is. So, Homo naledi is is little, and also their spine bones are, their vertebrae are smaller than, they're like some of the smallest verts in the fossil record, mm. like the size of Lucy, who's notoriously, who was notoriously small, Lucy being, you know, the Australopithecus afarensis from three million years ago. My guess is that maybe it doesn't have to do with their body size, because I don't think they would have been necessarily any bigger than some of these earlier Australopiths. I don't know if it has something to do with, yeah, maybe how the, forces are transmitted through their their bones as they're walking. Maybe it is a sign of more running activity. I have no idea. Mm. It's <laughs> Someone needs to follow up on this, and I just haven't had the time And, and that study. So
1: then, speaking of following up, kind of okay. what's next for you? Are, are you? are you working on more of the Rising Star Cave stuff, or what other projects do you have?
2: Yeah, I've got a couple projects. There's the continued... We have some infant remains of Homo Naledi that are very little that I'm working on with uh, Heather Garvin and Davorka and uh, a number of other collaborators. Uh, And so we need to basically analyze and describe those things. And they're just impossibly tiny. (laughs) They're so little. It's very frustrating. Uh, But they'll be very cool when we're done with that. So we're working on those kind of tangential to all of that. I started a new project this past year looking at Gibbon Brains. Uh, and I have a little mug actually from when I did the pilot work with my my undergrads here uh, two summers ago. And Gibbons, if you're not familiar for the audience, uh, are the small apes that live in Southeast Asia. They're not as closely related to us as chimpanzees or orangutans or gorillas, uh, but they're more closely related to us than monkeys. And so they're kind of this in this weird, you know, zone of, they're definitely not monkeys, but they're not as, as ape like as, as, not as human like, I guess, in many ways, as the other apes. But uh, Julia Zacello, who's a biological anthropologist, In New York, I think she is one of the Coonies. She had a paper in evolutionary anthropology a few years ago saying that, you know, we can use gibbon diversity as a model for early hominins. And I've been assigning that in my primates class for a few years. And then all of a sudden, one day, this light bulb kind of clicked on. Because with Homo naledi, we see even up until not terribly long ago, a couple hundred thousand years ago, which sounds like a long time ago, but in the scheme of evolution, it's pretty short. There were a lot of different species of humans. Humans are not very diverse today, even if we think we are. We're really not. And so living ape, or great apes, rather, don't have very much diversity either. But the small apes, the gibbons, they're like 20 different species distributed throughout Southeast Asia. And so now with this revelation from Julia's paper, I was like, oh, OK, well, you know, we've got brain shape variation in the early human fossil record. People will say, OK, well, maybe this means this area is bigger or this area is smaller. They could do this. They could do that. Um, But with a gibbon model, we can start to look at what variation looks like across closely related species that are kind of doing a lot of the same stuff in terms of their behavior and possibly their cognition as well. So that's a a project that I'm really excited to to start on now I'm meeting with a student after this meeting, actually, because he's doing a senior thesis about asymmetry in these gibbons that I don't think anyone's looked at before, which should be pretty cool. Yeah, so fossils and gibbons are kind of where it's at.
0: You alluded to something I actually want to ask you, uh, another question. Um, You're the first person actually from Vassar we've had on the show, right? Um, I know you've all gone to Michigan. We love Michigan, but (laughs) that's for Kara. Um, But, you know, like I said, I used to uh, hang out at Vassar when I was there, and unless things have changed, there's no grad program at Vassar. and. I, I'm curious what it's like teaching there, what the students are like, and what – I don't even remember there being a biological anthropologist on faculty when I was there because my wife wanted me to get a job there. I might be wrong. But I'm just curious of what the, the experience has been like for you there, what your lab is like, what kind of projects your students are involved in. Yeah, you know, it's, who it's, are been,
2: they? it's been neat. Um, it's a small – so Vassar is a small liberal arts college. It used to be the women's college back in the day, but it has been – it's, you know, all sexes and genders are, are welcome now for the past few decades. And so it's a small school, 2,500 students or so, undergrads only, but the students are very sharp and they do the reading they ask good questions. So they're, they're they're really great to work with. It is hard to get students into the lab for various reasons. I am the only biological anthropologist here and we're kind of secreted away in this, this building that is very beautiful. It was actually uh, HBO used it in the series the sex life of sex lives of college girls the outside the facade is like supposed to be one of the dorms but on the inside it's it's not as scenic um in my lab in my office and stuff is in there and so you know people don't come by it very often and i think there's also just this kind of a lot of people just don't know what we do and i think a lot of people think anthropology well that's just you know cultures and far-off societies a lot of people have very antiquated ideas about colonial origins i guess of anthropology as well, kind of persisting, which, you know, we're trying to fight against that. So it's, it's tricky, but I've been doing a class where we've started this new thing called intensives, where it's not really a, it's kind of a class, but it's not really a class. It's like a close mentoring sort of experience. And so I do a virtual methods class now for that. And I've got students, we're going to try to do a virtual reconstruction of one of the Homo Naledi skulls from the Lissetti chamber. That's, that's the plan at least. So yeah it's 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 a trip it's a it's a good school if i if i were young this would be a, a neat place to be but it's also small town kind of kind of isolated so pros and cons
1: That's, I think, true for every place with various pros and cons. But also, as we we wrap up, a brand new gibbon fossil was found. And some are saying it's the earliest gibbon fossil. Um, That paper just came out. Yeah, yeah, from China. Uh, Besides that point, because if there's a skull, you can now add that to your, uh, your gibbon brain study. What completes you, Zach? What sorts of things do you read, watch, listen to, or do for fun?
2: Um. As I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate that it's important to take time to have fun and complete oneself. So um, in general, I do try to spend time outside and be active regularly. So I run a lot. Uh, I used to do CrossFit before the pandemic. That's one of the, the pros actually of, of Poughkeepsie is that it's... There's a lot of kind of outside space, and so there's a lot of good hiking around in the Hudson Valley. Even the campus is kind of like a little, I think it's technically an arboretum. Uh, yeah, I try to just spend a lot of time outside, being active, uh, and looking out for birds. That's another kind of pandemic discovery. All kinds of crazy birds. Who who knew? Yeah, that, that
0: area is great for that. you got that rail trail is now going mm-hmm. yeah. really, really far, and all the hiking and the gunks. Yeah, that's, that's really... Yeah, I fell in love with that area. So I don't know if you use this a lot, but I know you're on Twitter, Z-C-O-F-R-A-N. Is that right? Yes. So I imagine folks can reach out to you there. Is there any other means of contacting you that you'd like to share?
2: Uh, I guess if people want to, if people have more questions, you can email me at Z-C-O-F-R-A-N at Vassar, V-A-S-S-A-R dot E-D-U. And I try to be good about emails. uh, Awesome. These days. Yeah.
0: And if any anyone wants to reach me, I'm at chris underscore ly. Uh, this is with the Sausage of Science.
1: I am Kara Akabach, and you can find me at Kara Akabach. Zach, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to talk to us about the cool work that you do and bringing paleoanthropology into human biology. We really appreciate
2: it. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to, to talk to me as well. I appreciate it. All right. Take care.